0: If you have any question about the sermon, passage, or topic, just text them into that number on the screen, and it will, which will also be at the bottom right-hand corner of all the slides from here on out, uh, and uh, we will do your, our best to, to answer that question uh, as well as we can, or say, I don't know, and follow up with you. Uh, it's Because it's texted, it's all anonymous, so you know you can ask a really hard question, and you're like, I don't know if it's okay to ask this. It is, categorically. Just believe that. Trust me. Um, especially because um, we have a guest preacher this morning. Uh, and I'm saying that because we've never had, we've actually had a couple guest preachers before. Be like, oh, I can do the Q and A. We'd love, I'd love to do that. No, no, we're good, um, because we just don't know. But JP has already preached here once, and um, I've gotten to know him pretty well. And man, he's good. Like he's real good. And, and he really gets what we're trying to do here at the table in ways that are in line with like, what it means to be the church, biblically speaking, but also in a way that looks very, maybe a little different in, in a place like this. And so he's going to be uh, preaching uh, as part of our sermon series in the, book of, in the Gospel of Luke on the, the, ki- the goodness of God and the kindness of Christ. And because we are preaching, this sermon passage is on Zacchaeus, who it says in the passage that I'm going to read in just a minute that he was a man shorter stature we really value making sure truth is communicated from the perspective of those who share that truth and jp short so um, I can say this because he told me I should and could um, i'm not trying to embarrass him I, I, like you've got to just balance it out with like we 're actually allowing him to do the q and a so. So that's, that's, that's the reasoning for that, and I'm going to stop talking because he should be preaching instead. So um, let me go ahead and read our passage from this morning and, and pray for him, and then we will continue on. All right, so from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, it says, He, referring to Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. See, I wasn't making that up. So he ran ahead and climbed up in an, into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your truth and that your word confounds our expectations. We thank you that you love us too much to just affirm what we already think or believe or how we see the world. Lord, we pray that you would use JP and, and this text and his expounding of your word to, to help us to see more clearly how subversive, how challenging, but also how good and inviting your love and your truth is. Lord, we thank you for these things, we pray all this in your name. Amen.
1: Thank you, Brad. Um, I'm really just here to confirm that Brad's an honest guy, so you can see the, the short stature um, <laughs> in front of you. Uh, Brad and I, uh, we, we were actually both at that church planning summit that Brad was, uh, was mentioning earlier, and it was a really great week, wasn't it, um, to, to be able to be with other church planters all, uh, all across the planet. Um, and, uh, and I'm excited to be with you guys uh, again today. We came back uh, at the beginning of January. I think it was the first Sunday in January we were here, and I got the chance to preach, and we had been here maybe a total of about 15 seconds, and one of my sons came up to me, and he said, Dad, I love this church, um, and that's been our experience with Brad um, and with Bryce and with, with Ashley, and if we lived in Lafayette, this is where we'd go to church. Um, so I'm glad that you're all here this morning, but it just so happens we live in South Denver. Um, so, um, but um, I, I was really excited actually to, to, to look at this passage with you all uh, this morning um, and recognizing that, that, that the sermon series that you're going through in the Gospel of Luke, you're thinking together about the goodness of God and the kindness uh, of Christ and doing that through these particular interactions and relationships that we see uh, through Luke's gospel that Jesus has uh, with people. And this morning, uh, we get to take a look at a, a, an interaction between uh, Jesus and a guy named Zacchaeus that Brad just read about. And here's what, here's what I want you to hang on to. Th- th- this is what I want us to hold on to uh, this morning. And this is what this passage uh, is all about. Um, so the main point of this passage is that this passage is about the power of Jesus... To seek and to save the lost. The power of Jesus to seek and to save the lost. And we get to see that through this interaction that Jesus has uh, with Zacchaeus. So so I want you to hang on to that. Hang on to the power of Jesus to seek and save the lost. And the way we're going to walk through this interaction this morning is we're going to walk through it in terms of the places that we get to see in this interaction. So the first thing we're going to look at is a tree, then a house, and then the public square. So, a tree. We, we, we first see in verse 1 that Jesus is coming to a place called Jericho, and that he's passing through this place. So, it seems that uh, Jesus doesn't really have these plans to stay for a very long time. He's, he's actually just passing through. And then we're introduced to this guy named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is, uh, we are told, is a chief tax collector, uh, and that he is, uh, he is rich. Um, Chief tax collector basically means that Zacchaeus oversaw all of the other tax collectors that were sort of in his region. So he kind of like managed that. That's what he, uh, that's what he did. And his job put him into, in a position where he was incredibly wealthy. Uh, he was very, very rich. So Zacchaeus uh, finds himself in a very powerful position. Uh, he is in a position in his society where he holds uh, a great deal of power. Uh, He holds the power over uh, whether or not to take funds, to take resources, to take money from people, um, and to potentially even destroy their life if he wants to. Certainly, uh, he has the power to take funds and money from people and to oppress them and keep them down. He also is in a position of power where he could actually lift people up. He could actually help people flourish. And then we see that Jesus is coming into town. Jesus is coming into town where Zacchaeus lives, and the crowds, they start gathering uh, around Jesus. And there's so many of them, and it seems that there's so many people that are gathered around Jesus that Zacchaeus uh, couldn't see Jesus. And Zacchaeus is described to us as being small in, in stature, right? Um, I can identify uh, with this. I told Brad when we were in Florida, I said, you know what would would have been really great? Is if at some point in time in my life, I worked for the IRS. Um, I could could really, really identify with Zacchaeus. But I certainly identify with Zacchaeus in in this. If you are small, and if you're a child, you know this. Like you get this, you have to be resourceful. (laughs) If you're going to get to things, and if you're going to see things, and if you're going to be involved in things... You have to be resourceful. So Zacchaeus is a very resourceful man. And he goes and he climbs up this sycamore tree. And kind of think of the sycamore tree as it's, its branches are spread out like an oak tree. And so Zacchaeus, he climbs up into this tree just so he can catch a glimpse of Jesus. Like that's his, that's his purpose, is to... Catch a glimpse of Jesus. It's kind of like me when I'm in my kitchen and I, and I open up the cabinet and I'm trying to look on the top shelf, but I can't see, so I have to pull out the step stool just so I can catch a glimpse of what's going on there. He's just trying to catch a glimpse of Jesus. There must be, to Zacchaeus, something incredibly compelling about this Jesus who's come into his town. And then we come to verse 5 and we see that Jesus comes to the tree. Jesus comes to the tree and he stops there, Jesus places himself in a position to where he actually has to look up to Zacchaeus. And he looks at Zacchaeus and he says, come down, hurry, come down, I must stay at your house. And this language here where Jesus communicates, I must stay at your house, it's the language of determination. Determination. Like Jesus is not going to be deterred. He is not going to take no for an answer from Zacchaeus. Jesus is, is the house guest who uh, doesn't knock and just comes in. He just lets himself in. He's very, very determined. and So he tells Zacchaeus, come down. I got to go to your house. And so Zacchaeus responds. He hurries down. And we're told that, 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 he, that he hurries down and that he receives this demand from Jesus joyfully, with joy, there, there's something about Jesus that is overwhelming to Zacchaeus. And then in verse seven, we get a little bit of a window into how Zacchaeus's community thinks about him. We see that the crowds, they begin to, to, to grumble. And they say to themselves, "Why is he going to hang out with this guy who's a sinner?" And this language of sinners kind of like a category, if you will. A category of people who would have been seen as less than. A category of people who would not have belonged to God's people, historically speaking, Israel. And here's what's really deep about this with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is actually an Israelite. (laughs) And so they are lumping Zacchaeus in with... All of these other people that they would have seen as being less than. You see, it's as if Zacchaeus is one of their own and he's actually working for the enemy. And the enemy to these people is Rome, the Roman government. Zacchaeus is working for the Roman government and he's taking advantage of his own people. Taking their resources from them. Everyone hated Zacchaeus. But Jesus clearly, clearly doesn't care. That doesn't matter to Jesus. Jesus pursues Zacchaeus, and he says, you've got to come down because I've got to go to your house. So we move from the tree, and we go to Zacchaeus' house. We go to the house. And it's interesting, we don't really get any specifics of what the interaction between Zacchaeus and Jesus is at Zacchaeus' house. Um, but, clearly, Jesus went to Zacchaeus's house with determination to interact with him and to communicate things to him. And whatever it was that Jesus said to him radically changed Zacchaeus. He had a radical change. Because the next place that we see Zacchaeus and we see Jesus is actually in the public square. That's what scholars and commentators who have looked at this passage say about the declaration that gets made, is that, it's, that, that Zacchaeus has kind of come back to the public square to make an announcement, to make a declaration. And this is his declaration in verse 8. If you have a copy of the Bible, you can look at this with me. Let's read this back together. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, said to Jesus in the public square, Behold, Lord. The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This short, rich, tax collector sinner encounters Jesus. And he comes out to make a public promise. A public declaration. A public promise. I'll give away half ...of what I own to the poor. And then he acknowledges... ...that he's defrauded people before, really. He acknowledges... ...that he has taken what did not belong to him. And he says, I'll repay that fourfold... four times as much as I have taken to anyone that I've done that to. It communicates this radical change... ...that has happened inside of Zacchaeus... ...that works itself out... ...in this public promise. And and here's how we know that this change is radical... ...is we actually have to dip back into the Old Testament a little bit. In Leviticus chapter 6, we find out that God instructs his people... ...that restitution, repay, paying back... ...should include the original amount... ...plus no more than one-fifth on top of that. Zacchaeus says... I'll go four times. And four times the mount is actually on par with another instruction that God gave his people in Exodus chapter 22, that four times repayment is equal to the repayment and restitution for theft and killing of or selling of livestock, of an animal. Do we see what Zacchaeus is saying here? Zacchaeus is saying... I'm a thief. I have taken that which does not belong to me. You see what Zacchaeus says? He declares, I'm guilty. I am the sinner that you call me to be. I'm absolutely and utterly guilty. But Jesus has changed me radically. And then in verse 9, we see Jesus' own declaration, his own promise about Zacchaeus to Zacchaeus in the public square. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today, today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. Hey, crowd out there, other sons and daughters of Abraham, this guy is too. He belongs to God's people. Verse 10, for the Son of Man, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus makes his own declaration. Salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house. He really and truly is a son of Abraham because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Radical, radical, radical change has happened in Zacchaeus' life. Now remember, this passage is ultimately about The power of Jesus to seek and to save the lost. That's ultimately what this passage is about. So what I want us to do for the next little bit is I want us to think about and think together about and process together about this idea of of power. Um, It's a word we're all very familiar with. Um, In some spaces it's a very loaded word, right? Right? I want us to look at this idea of power from a few different perspectives. I want us to think about the idea uh, of power from an institutional perspective and a personal perspective, and how institutionally we look at power, and personally we look at power, and how institutionally power is used, and personally how power is used. And then the last thing that I want us to look at together is Jesus' power, and how Jesus looks at power, and how Jesus thinks about power, and how Jesus uses power. So let's think for, uh, for a few moments uh, about institutional power, this idea of power and in institutions. You see, Zacchaeus, he was a representative of the Roman government. He worked for an institution. He worked for the government, the institutional governing power of Jesus' day. The average person looked at the Roman government and immediately thought, corrupt, which is exactly what we get to see with the crowds as they look at Zacchaeus, right? Um, The Roman government often stole from people, kept people stagnant without an inability to move forward or to gain any sort of leg up, suppressed flourishing of the community in exchange for maintaining the power of the institution. And so people who were not in that upper echelon, that small group of people who held that kind of institutional power, they looked at the Roman government with an incredible amount of skepticism and suspicion of the institution of the Roman government. Why? Why is that? Well, because ultimately... In the Roman government, power was mostly used for the collective self-interest of the Roman government. It was used for self. It was used to build up self. It was used to promote self of the institution of the Roman government. In 2019, so this is pre-pandemic, the Pew Research Poll um, did uh, did a survey... That was, uh, that was asking questions that was trying to get at how much people trusted trust institutions in the United States. Uh, so it was a really broad poll uh, that was done. And the results that came back from that poll, essentially, are that trust in government institutions and in institutions in general is rapidly decreasing in our country. Um, surprise, right? No, I mean, it's not that big of a surprise. And then obviously we have this pandemic that happens and it even heightens it even more. So I would imagine that these numbers would actually increase uh, even more um, today if we were to take a look uh, at that. This idea of uh, institutional power is one that is a part of our public conversation that we, uh, that we have and that we, the, we live in Um, It applies to government institutions, to civic institutions, to financial institutions. It even applies to spiritual institutions, like the church. Last year, Christianity Today released a a podcast uh, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church uh, in Seattle. And Basically, if you have not listened to that podcast, that podcast is ultimately um, pretty much about the The Abuse of Power in the Institution of the Church. Uh, And this podcast was really widely listened to. It was number one in Apple Podcasts religion category, but as a matter of fact, it made it into the top three of all podcasts listened to on Apple Podcasts. Everybody is listening to this. Everybody is processing this idea of institutions and power and the abuse of it. So, all of that to say, we're not that far off from the people of Jesus' day. I mean, we actually have a lot in common with the people that are here in this passage. And we have suspicion. (laughs) We have skepticism toward institutions. Why? Because we've seen and experienced, some of us on a very personal level, institutions using power for self-interest whether those are governmental, financial, civic, and even the church. And what all of this should do is it should yield in us a deep, deep sadness. A deep sadness for the the state of things. And even an appropriate frustration around that. And an appropriate longing for something that is better than that. Even a looking at and saying, that's just wrong. That would be very, very, very appropriate. But but we should not do that without a sense of, of humility. A sense of introspection about ourselves. And that actually brings us to the idea of personal power here. You see, Zacchaeus was an actual person. He was an actual person with actual personal individual power. And what Zacchaeus did is he used that for personal gain to get rich, to become wealthy, to set himself apart from others, to put himself in a position where he didn't need others. He used his power to keep people down. He stole from people out of self-interest for his own quality of life. And you see, and this tells us something about personal power and institutional power, is that that, that's a dynamic that exists together. You can't silo it off on its own. You can't fully exclude one from the other. And if you have ever been on the receiving end of the abuse of personal power, you know how wrong that is. You know how terrible that is. It makes us feel used. It makes us feel worthless, dirty, manipulated. And we should call that what it is, wrong. It's wrong. But not without humility. Not without a sense of our own introspection and reflection because... The truth is, is we're not that far from Zacchaeus either. When put in positions of power, we are tempted to exercise it for our own self-interest. I'm going to go out here and say that every single one of us is actually guilty of that. At some point in time and in some way in our, in our lives of being in a position of power and using it for the benefit of self And for for self-interest. As I was thinking about this, uh, I I, uh, was reflecting on actually being in middle school. And I grew up in a small town in South Carolina. Um, I know know you guys were thinking Canada. That's where the accent comes from. Um, But I grew up in this small dairy town in South Carolina called Roebuck, South Carolina. And I went to Gable Middle School. Um, I'll really get into the southern accent here. Uh, but I was in sixth grade, and, 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 and for reasons that I can't necessarily I- I explain to you, uh, I got a shirt for Christmas. And on the back of that shirt was one of those tags that was, that was back there that you could hang it up on so that you wouldn't have the, you know, the shoulder poking out thing. Um, but for whatever reason, at Gable Middle School in the early 1990s, having one of those shirts put you in a position to be made fun of. Um and so I had one of those shirts and I wore it to school one day and I got picked on and I got made fun of. I, I I was uh I I was actually on the receiving end of people being in a position of power with their words and using it to hurt me and to and to benefit self. Well, I didn't like that. And so I decided to have one of my friends actually like tear it off. And that got me in trouble at home. Because that was a brand new shirt. And why would you do that? And so I found myself in this position of I've somehow and in some way have to figure out how to protect self here. Well, it just so happened that that very day that I'd gotten it pulled off, I found myself on the eighth grade hallway in the bathroom with two guys who were known for getting in trouble. And so what I did is I went back to school the next day and I told my teacher and the principal that those two guys threatened to beat me up if I didn't. Tear that thing off the back of my shirt, which was an outright lie. They never said that to me. But I was in a position of power because I knew that they were troublemakers and that, 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 that the principal would believe me and get them in trouble. You see, it can be as small as something like that. Every single one of us actually has our own story that is in that kind of vein. Everyone has their own version of being in a position, being in a place, in a position of power, and using it for the benefit of self. So each and every one of us actually stands guilty, broken, what the Bible calls sin, and sinful in using power to promote self in a way that we can think about this, this language and this word of sin is life pursued around self and the interests of self. And every single one of us, at some level, is guilty of that very thing. You see, we're actually all like Zacchaeus. We need a radical change. We, we need something from the outside of us to get into us and to come into us and to change our hearts and to change our desires to not promote self, but to be for the benefit of others. And that actually brings us to Jesus' power how Jesus looks at power, how Jesus thinks about power, how Jesus uses power. Because remember, a passage is all about the power of Jesus to seek and to save the lost. And this is my last point. So if you've got questions, go ahead and you can start um, texting uh, texting those in. You see, the passage is all about the power of Jesus to seek and to save the lost. You see, this this is a reference to directly what Jesus says has happened to Zacchaeus in verse 10. So what that means is that Zacchaeus was lost. Zacchaeus was lost in a life built around self and built around self-interest and built around using his position of power to benefit self. And the Bible calls that sin. He was lost in sin. He was in a place of needing to be found. Jesus even says he needed salvation. Because salvation is what has come to Zacchaeus' house. He needed to be saved. He needed to be rescued from his lostness. And this morning, we stand as guilty as Zacchaeus. We stand as guilty as Zacchaeus of this life built around self and self interest. We too are lost. We, too, need to be found and rescued. And Jesus has the power to do this, and Jesus uses his power to do this, too. A number of years ago, when our family was still living in North Carolina, we went to a friend's house uh, to, to play, and they had woods out behind, uh, out behind their house that was full of, of pine trees. If you've ever been to North Carolina, you know pine trees are everywhere. Um, and it was fun to romp around and to play in the woods, and our kids were playing out there. And on the back side of their woods was a clearing, and in this clearing there were two smaller ponds that were there. And our children were out there, and, uh, and, and they were playing, and we were kind of out there in the woods, but we had lost sight of them. We didn't exactly know uh, where, they, where they were. And then all of a sudden, our, our oldest daughter, Lucy, and her, and her friend, Cora, they come running from the other side uh, of these ponds out of the woods and they're screaming. And they're screaming about ants. That they've somehow gotten into a fire ant pile. And that uh, one of the, their, their young friends, Charlotte, has fire ants all over her. Um, and so myself and Charlotte's dad, first we check and make sure our older daughters are okay. Okay. And then we go running to see if we can find Charlotte and to see how bad this really and truly is. And we start running out there, and and, and Charlotte and our two boys are kind of running back. And it turns out that, that basically Charlotte had one bite from a fire ant <laughs> on her. And uh, so we start making our way back, thinking, okay, whew, all right, this, whew, this could have been really bad. Um, but it wasn't. And and then, and then we get back to the spot where... We left Cora and Lucy, and Cora's there, but Lucy's not. I said, Cora, where did Lucy go? And she said, well, well Lucy went running, running off that way, like back, back in through the woods. I was like, okay, well. So I start walking back through the woods, back to their house and to their backyard, thinking along the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see her, like I'm going to pass her, or she's actually already up at the house. And I come out to the other end, the other, si- the other side of the woods, and yell up to my wife, Carrie, Carrie, is, is Lucy there? Is she, is she in the backyard? And Carrie's like, no. I said, well, have you seen her? And she said, um, no, I, no, I haven't seen her. Uh, and, and then it hit me. We don't know where she is. And so I went running back through the woods and was screaming her name, trying to find her, trying to find her. And, and, and I hadn't explained anything to Carrie. <laughs> she has no idea what's going on, but separately... She, too, starts running back through the woods, and we cannot find Lucy. She's lost. We can't find her. As a matter of fact, she was so afraid of these ants that, 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 she, that, that, that her pile of clothes is sitting at the edge of this pond. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, as I get back to the pond, she thought these ants were all over her, and she tried to get in the water. Um, and, and, and we don't know where she is. And so we're screaming and running everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And then <clears throat> then all of a sudden I, I hear her voice and I see looking across a, a, a ravine, my wife, and she's just barreling down the side of this ravine to go and to, to grab our, uh, our daughter and to find her. And she comes up with her and, and, and Lucy's all dirtied and muddied. Carrie's all dirtied and muddied. She's got holes in her shirt because she's run down the side of this hill and sticks have grabbed her and thorns have grabbed her. And she comes up with our daughter and she's holding our daughter and our daughter is clinging to her for, for her own very life because she's so, so, so scared. This is exactly how Jesus looks at you and me and Zacchaeus. Jesus comes down into the ravine and he gets dirty right alongside of us. He gets dirty right alongside of us and we're lost and we can't get ourselves out of that. And what he does is he picks us up and he latches us on his back and he carries us out with them. You see, Jesus comes to us and he says, you know what? You can't save yourself. You can't rescue yourself, but I have the power to save you. And that's exactly what I will do. And that means, and this is what Jesus is communicating to Zacchaeus and to us, it means that Jesus will go to a cross. Jesus will become our sin and our self-centeredness Jesus will become the dirt and the grime that is all over us while we are in the ditch. The life that's built around self. And he says, I'll become that for you. I'll become that for you on your behalf. And in my death, what happens is salvation comes to your house. You actually are rescued. You actually are saved because I am the one who is going to do it. You see, Jesus uses his power only for the benefit of others. Always and only, never to promote self, but only to promote the lost that he came to seek and to save and to give us forgiveness and to give us life. And you notice Zacchaeus doesn't earn this. He doesn't earn this and neither do we. It's declared over us. That's what Jesus does. Jesus makes a declaration, a promise over us. You see, this salvation, this rescue is given to us as a free gift. It's a free gift that Jesus willingly comes and gives to us. And the Bible calls that grace. It is the free gift of God's goodness to us in his love for us through the kindness of Christ And when we are united together with Jesus by this very grace and saved from our sin and our lostness, it changes how we look at power. It changes how we use power. Not for self, but for the benefit of others. To give it away. Not to promote self. And further than that... Jesus didn't just come to seek and to save one lost person or many lost persons, but he actually came to seek and to save a lost people, a collective, a corporate, a group that he calls the church. And the way he refers to his church is that his church is a building. It is his body. It is his bride. Jesus came to save and to seek the lost that is his people, his church. That means that Jesus is actually building an institution that should mirror the way he thinks about power and the way he looks at power to promote the benefit of others, not to promote the benefit of self. To seek and to save the lost. To invite people into his house where he must stay. The church. And to proclaim salvation belongs here in this place. And it has come through my very broken body and my very blood that is given for you. power of Jesus to seek and to save the lost. Let's take a look at some of these questions maybe that we have. Oh my goodness. This is a, be gentle with me. I'm, this is, this is my first go at this. Um, So let's take a look here. Yeah, so it's a great question. Okay, so uh, if we have so much in common with Zacchaeus and the circumstances uh, of Luke 19, how is it not just naive to trust institutions like the church when the track record is so poor and almost always unrepentant, uh, unlike Zacchaeus? Even if we are all like Zacchaeus, isn't that an argument against institutions on principle because they will just lead to abuse um, anyways? Uh, that's a great question. That, that's a really great question. Here, here would be my response to that. Um, look for a church that values accountability. Look for a church that has embedded into uh, its, its leadership and its framework and its way of operating as a church that values as a top priority accountability. Um, in, that, in that place uh, but because you're, you're right in this and that we're all tempted towards this way. <laughs> uh, none of us is actually uh, immune to any of this. And so what Jesus has done is he's actually set up the church in such a way to be a hedge around those temptations so that we actually build the kinds of relationships where if somebody is doing that and is using power for self-interest, that there should be another person who is in relationship with that person who can look at that person and say, that's not right, that's wrong, and that's not how we're going to, how we're going to do things. Um, yes, maybe there is a, a, a naivete that, it, that, that exists in that, um, but what I would say is that the principle of the reality that Jesus hasn't just come to seek and to save a lost person or a lost many persons, but the principle that he came to seek and save a lost people, and to build a church, to build an institution, that principle actually supersedes uh, the, the, the other one that might say, well, let's just not do it because it's ultimately going to lead uh, to this. Uh, if we're followers of Jesus, we, we don't actually get to say that because he's called us into a community together into the kinds of mutual relationships where accountability really matters and should really actually uh, uh, exist. Okay, so that's that one. Who would you say are the modern equivalents of Zacchaeus for us? Who are we reticent to pursue uh, like Jesus uh, did Zacchaeus I mean, I feel like that could be even way across the board, depending on where depending on where you're coming from. If you're coming from a position that thinks of like uh, corporations and uh, and, uh, and 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 big corp as inherently uh, evil, then maybe um, it's the people who are like the CEOs for those big corporations. Uh, are like Zacchaeus, if you're coming from a position where you like to think of yourself as, as someone who's really pulled up their bootstraps and worked really hard for what you have, then you might actually have an eye towards uh, the poor and the homeless that is, that, that's a little bit judgmental, and think, of, and think of them in that kind of category, um, and so it kind of really depends on where it is that you're, uh, that you're coming from. Um, I'm always struck by how Jesus is always after everyone. <laughs> Um, and, and he certainly has a, 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 a very gentle and tender eye towards the poor and the marginalized. That's, that, that's absolutely true. But in our case here this morning, Jesus goes after the guy that everybody hated. Why? Because he was the rich. He was the, he was the wealthy. And Jesus actually goes right for, uh, for, for his heart. And I think that's also part of what's beautiful about the church of Jesus is that we're actually built together of a collective of people who are from like, all across the spectrum. Um, and that, thats how Jesus's church should really kind of uh, kind of look. Okay. You commented that Jesus is a house guest who just lets himself in and doesn't knock. How does this square with him saying, "I stand at the door and knock"? <laughs> could you could you clarify? That's great. That that's that, that that's wonderful. Um, you know, it, what I think is really, one of the things that's really, really neat um, about, about the Bible and about God's Word is it communicates to us from the very beginning that there is, there's, this, there, there's this distinction between the Creator and, and the creature. And that, that as those who bear God's image in His world as, as creatures, um, we are actually not made and wired to know in the ways that the Creator does. Um, so, this is why we have all these tensions throughout the Bible, too. That, that, that we have this very, very clear statement of Jesus here. who says, I'm coming into your house. Um, we have this very clear picture of a God in the Bible who is, who is actually um, overseeing everything that happens and, and ruling over everything. And yet, at the same time, his creatures those who are uh, his image bearers in this world who are broken and marred, we're actually responsible for our decisions and for our actions. And the Bible is really comfortable with us living in that tension. That God is absolutely ruling over everything, that everything in this world and everything in my life and in your life is moving towards Jesus and is moving toward a new heaven and a new earth. And at the same time, we're actually really responsible for our actions we're really responsible for the decisions that we make. And so maybe you're wondering, well, how in the world is this getting at, you know, what he's talking about here? Um, Jesus is coming in, and he is the one who's initiating and doing that work of that radical change. And at the same time, the Bible is very clear. We have to respond to that. We have to embrace that by faith. And the Bible is comfortable with us living in that tension that, that is very clear that God is the one who actually comes in and changes, and at the same time, we have to respond to that. We have to receive that. So, Jesus is coming in the house, and Jesus is also saying, I'm knocking. Hear my voice. Hear my message. Respond. Receive that. Embrace that uh, from the heart. I hope that helps. It probably, it probably doesn't fully answer it, but I'm comfortable with that because... Because God's God and we're not. And he's okay with us living in that tension. It's part of what, it's actually part of what keeps us dependent on Jesus. It's part of what keeps us remembering that we never get beyond needing Jesus. Um, So, that's the last question I had. Let me pray for us. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us. You love us so much that you gave us Jesus. And it is your goodness to us. Your love to us through the kindness of your one and only son, Jesus. That we are those who belong to you. Who are called your sons and your daughters. And we pray that you would make us more and more like Jesus. We pray that you would shape us and you would change our impulses to be more in line with Jesus as we think about power in our own context and in our own lives. And as we think about power in, in, in this thing even called the local church. Of what the table is and, and, and how it is that the table is to think about what it means to be an institution in Lafayette in 2022. That it would use the power that we have in your word God. That Jesus came to seek and save the lost for the benefit of others. Uh, and not for the benefit of self. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
0: In the assurance from this morning, uh, from Deuteronomy 7, one of, the, one of the phrases in there that I just I love, and it. it's, it's, it's repeated throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well, is this idea of God's people being his treasured possession. We don't really use that language. We don't talk about, like, you know, if I, I said, you know, Hannah, my wife, was my treasured possession I'd be like, huh? Cool. I don't think they do that anymore. Um, and, and but but the the illustration that JP was telling of, and, and that picture of his wife holding his daughter and embracing her, that's the kind of possession that 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 God says, I'm not going to let go. I actually just love you too much. That there's actually nothing that could keep me from you whether that's a ravine or your own sin. He doesn't just enter into that. He actually absorbs, pays the cost for it, and in ways that I think, especially because of our familiarity with that, makes it really hard to remember that as God's treasured possession, there is nothing that could ever keep him from releasing his grip and his embrace. But when Jesus was with his friends, when he was with the disciples, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, it is broken for you. And we, we often, I think my own mind goes to the broken part and bread and body, and I just pass over the for, for you. That's a statement of treasured possession, that this is beyond worth it to Jesus, to embrace you. And likewise, he took the wine, and he poured it out, and he says, this wine is my blood. It is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. It is here to close the gap as I sprint to hug you. And there is now nothing, this is so potent, so effectual, so so satisfying of every gap you could possibly fathom There's nothing that can undo it. And whoever, you know, texted in that question around who are the people that we disbelieve and don't pursue in the way that Jesus Zacchaeus is, my first thought was like, I have a hard time believing that he does that with me. You know, a CEO, it's like, okay, yeah, sure. Cool, Jesus loves him. Got it. Me, though? And so maybe you're on that end of the the difficulty to believe part this morning. And if that's you, that's actually what this is for. This is for when we have a hard time believing that we're lost and we also have a hard time believing that we're found. Jesus gives us this tangible reminder as if to say like no really. <laughs> Broken for you, spilled for you. For you. And so if that is your hope, even just a little bit, this table is for you. And you're invited to come and eat and drink. Be nourished in that truth and in that hope. And let's pray. Jesus, thank you for not just a reassurance, but a... ah, I don't even have the words to describe how badly we need to be reminded that we are your treasured possession, in part especially because it is the forgetfulness and that gospel amnesia that causes us to to think that, to disbelieve or doubt that you could love other sinners. So, Lord, humble us, but not in a sense of woe is me, despair, but in hopeful joy that your love changes everything. And therefore, we need bring nothing to the table. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace that makes us not just possible, but assured. And we pray in your name, amen.